series in Exodus, and we are getting very ambitious because we are going to cover chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 this morning. I hope you don't have lunch plans. So, um, But there is so much that could be said uh, about the content in these chapters, that they cover plagues 1 through 9. And truthfully, there could be a sermon over each plague. However, they are structured in such a way that addressing them as a unit is relatively doable, although difficult. But um, here's an initial question. Why leave out the 10th plague? Why just cover the first nine? Well, because the 10th plague is different from all the rest. We'll discuss how so in the next sermon. But the 10th plague is the climax. It stands out from all the others, from the other nine. The nine are building up to the 10th, but the 10th kind of breaks the pattern. And so here's the question, what's the main point of the first nine plagues? What's the main point of these first nine plagues in Exodus? In short, they are all about worship and authority. They're all about worship and authority. Who has the authority? Because whoever has the authority is worthy of our worship, is worthy to be trusted and to be followed. And the plagues are God's direct response to Pharaoh question when he first meets Moses. Do you remember? In chapter 5, when, he, when Moses tells uh, Pharaoh to let Israel go, do you remember Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord? Who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? You can almost hear the tone, his tone of mocking arrogance in his response. Now, as we mentioned before, Pharaoh is not denying the existence of Yahweh, the existence of Israel's God. But the Egyptians and Pharaoh believed in and worshiped many gods. And so having another one is not a weird thing for them. But uh, Pharaoh is saying in response, he's in essence saying, I have my gods. You have yours, Israel and Moses. Why would I obey your God? I've never heard of him. And the plagues then serve as a direct answer to Pharaoh's condescending question. God smiles and says, I'm so glad you asked, Pharaoh. Let me show you who I am. Specifically, let me show you who I am in relation to the gods that you have put your hope and your trust in. Um, I would have normally have you stand, but we have a, kind of a lot to cover. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll have you stay seated uh, for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in chapter 7 of Exodus, start in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood, and in vessels of stone. 
Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh. In the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he, did not, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, and they may ser- that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your, and your people and into the ovens and your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. And make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up from the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and from your house and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh, And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyard, in the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth, so so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on the man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now turn over to chapter 10. The last of the nine plagues, and uh, start chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, 
Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take to them and serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away, get away from me, take care, never to see my face again. For on that day, you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, give us ears to hear, and that you would soften the hard places of our hearts to receive your word and be shaped and molded by it, and that your spirit would move and work through your proclaimed uh, word here in Exodus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because we are going to be hovering above most of the details of these chapters, I want to give you some structure and some format information in order to kind of get your, beer, your bearings of the text. These nine plagues have a flow. They have a structure to them. And that gets broken up by the 10th plague. They natu- so these first nine plagues naturally fall into three sets of three, meaning plagues one through three go together. They form a set. Uh, four through six form a set. And seven through nine form a set. The first two plagues in each set were announced to Pharaoh beforehand that they were going to happen. But the third plague in each set happens without warning. And we will get into some more of the flow and structure as we, as we go in this sermon. But on the outset, I just wanted us to, have some, to see some patterns in the plagues because I think that helps us to clearly see some of what's going on in the intentionality in this narrative of the plagues. Which brings us to our first question. Why nine? Or why ten? Why this number of plagues? Why not just do three or six or maybe just one? Why draw this out through this number of plagues? Why not just skip to number ten, the Passover, the climax, the one that works? Why not go straight to that one? Well, one reason is because even in God's judgment, he is merciful. God gives the Egyptians time to see and therefore believe who he is, the only true God, the Lord of their lords. We clearly see his mercy in the seventh plague, the one of hail. We didn't read that. But it's there in chapter 9 that God warns Pharaoh and Egypt that any livestock or people who are left out in the field will be struck down by the hail. And so God tells Pharaoh, to put everything that is in the field into safe shelter so they won't be affected by the plague of hail. But we also see that this number of plagues, that we have this number of plagues because deliverance is not the only purpose for these plagues. Although that's clearly the final outcome, uh, it's not the only purpose of why we have the plagues. Look at chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. This is right before the seventh plague. It's the, la- it's the beginning of the last set of the three plagues. And it says, <clears throat> in verse, starting in verse 15 of chapter 9, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence 
and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see what God is saying here? I could have wiped you and your people out, Pharaoh. I could have done it instantly. But delivering Israel from your oppression is not the only thing that I'm after here. He's saying, Pharaoh, I'm going to answer your initial question in such a way that it will become clear to all generations in all history over all the earth who Yahweh is. I am delivering my people Israel from you now, but this deliverance is so much bigger than you and even them. In these plays, God is showing who he is as ruler and king over everything. He is showing the clear display and reach of his authority, of who God actually is. Which brings us to this next question. Why are the plagues so natural? Why does God use such natural things in these plagues? I mean, he could have done some pretty miraculous things to display his power and his authority or called upon angels or something of that sort. But God is not interested in simply flexing his muscles here. This is not a raw display of his power in a general sense, but it's an unleashing of God's creative forces. These plagues are rooted and connected in all the spheres of nature and of creation. And in many ways, what these plagues are doing is undoing or pressing rewind on what we read in the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2. So these plagues are actually undoing what God did in Genesis 1 and 2. In the creation accounts, God takes chaos and he takes void and he creates order and he creates form out of those things. But in these plagues, he's in some ways removing that order and restoring chaos in Egypt. Why? Why is he doing that? Because when we cease to worship the creator, we don't cease worshiping. But we start to worship creation. We start to worship things in creation instead of the creator they point to. Pharaoh and Egypt are no different from us because their many gods are found represented in creation. Again, I don't have time to give the details of how that's displayed in each plague. But these plagues and what he's doing is showing that these representations of their gods in, uh, in created things, God's showing his authority over them. The first plague of turning water into, of the Nile into blood, God is taking what was life-giving, the life-giving waters of the Nile, much of the reason why Egypt is great in this time, and he's turning it into a place of death. The Nile was personified and worshipped as a god by the Egyptians. And so to attack the Nile was essentially an attack on the Egyptian gods, because all the other plagues then flow from this first one. All the other plagues that come, the next nine, or the next eight that come from this first one, they flow from that. But plagues two, three, and four are, are pests. They're pests, but they come from water, they come from dust or land, and they come from air. So they come from water, land and air showing that God the God of Israel is the God of all nature is the God of all nature but the plagues get progressively worse they get progressively more destructive and disruptive to the Egyptians one takeaway from this is that this is what actually sin produces 
One takeaway from these plagues and the progression of them and the restoring chaos from order is showing us what sin produces. See, God's rules, commands, his laws, and his judgments are not random, arbitrary tests for you. They are not meant to keep you away from something that's fun or good that you want to do as if he's withholding something from you. Rather, they are revelation and a display of the very fabric of creation. It's a loving path. God's rules are a loving path on how all creation is created and meant to function. And when it's followed, you're supposed to experience flourishing, a sense of this is what I was created for, right? Therefore, the opposite is true as well. To disobey God and his rule and his authority is to unleash chaos and disorder into your life. It is to go against the purpose of creation, the very fabric of what you were created for. It's like taking a fish out of water and proclaiming it to finally be free, right? These plagues show us that to move away from God's rule and authority in your life is to move towards destroying yourself towards adding chaos and destruction into your life. We see this all the time, don't we? I mean, when relationships and marriages fall apart, the devastation and the chaos that comes from that is sadly clear to see. When we don't have a work-life balance, we don't rest, but we go, 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 and oftentimes the wake that's left behind in our doing is terrible. Or the long-term impact of the constant stress and demands of work can be terrible for your health. When we try to live life on our own, apart from people, apart from community, apart from a community of believers where we're known by them, the destructive life, we start to make destructive life decisions. We go unchecked and we start to minimize our faith is often the result of not being a part of community. And when we treat our desires and our wants as needs and demands, we push away those who are closest to us, causing rifts that are hard to overcome because they no longer serve our purpose of getting what we want. The list goes on and on, proving that to disobey God is not simply to break some pointless rule, but to go against the life and the world order the way it's meant to be. Therefore, chaos and destruction will ensue when you go against the way that God has created you and the world to function. But while these plagues are an undoing of created order into chaos, notice how it's a controlled chaos. It's not a a rampant, out-of-control chaos. It's a controlled chaos. First, notice that while God unleashes these plagues, he is also the one who causes them to cease. In other words, he has the power to undo creation, but he also has the power to create and then recreate as well. The termination of the plagues is as much a sign of God's rule and authority as the plagues themselves. Pharaoh's magicians that we read in the first uh, few plagues there, they're able to repeat. They're able to copy the first two plagues. They're able to do through their secret arts what God does in the first two plagues, but Not only are they unable to repeat any of the plagues after the first two, they are only able to recreate chaos and destruction. They are not able to stop it once it starts. 
Notice they are not the ones who cause the plagues to cease. They just add to it. They add to the chaos, the destruction that's already happening in Egypt. So the magicians repeating the first two plagues are only adding to the destruction and chaos in Egypt, but they can't make it stop. They can't create order out of chaos. Only Yahweh can do that. And whatever their gods or power, it's limited in what they can do. It's limited in that they can only add destruction to their secret arts. They cannot repair and they cannot restore order from chaos. The other place we see God's authority over chaos in a controlled way on display is starting with the fourth plague. It's the f- fourth plague is the first one, the second set of three, that only Egypt from the fourth plague on gets afflicted by the plagues, not Israel. They are protected from them. So God is showing his power to control, but he's also setting up a theme that will run throughout the entire Bible. It actually starts in Genesis 3, that he's setting apart his people from everyone else. He's setting them apart from everyone else. Here he's showing the distinction between his people and the people of Pharaoh, the enemy, which is really showing the distinction between Yahweh and Egypt's people. So remember, Pharaoh is that representative of the enemy. So he's, what he is doing, he's setting apart his people from the enemy and showing us these are the only two options. These are the only two camps of people you can be in. Either part of God's people who are set apart or part of everything else, which is the enemies. Everything else and everyone else is the enemy. So God unleashes chaos and the undoing of creation these plagues, but not in an uncontrolled, haphazard way, but in an intended, purposeful, targeted way towards Egypt. Which brings us to the next point, the purpose of the judgment of God. The judgment of Yahweh is meant to punish the enemy, and it accomplishes that. But as we mentioned earlier, even his judgment, even in his judgment, he is still merciful. Because the other part of God's judgment is, a, is and here in the plagues is that it's a warning. It's meant to warn you of what is coming to those who disobey him. It's warning Egypt of who's really authoritative, who's over everything. It warns you of what happens to people who do not listen to and do the word of God. Pharaoh is the enemy, and to not follow God is therefore to follow the enemy. To follow the enemy is to suffer the consequences of God's enemies, which is his just and righteous judgment. So these plagues also serve as a warning to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and to us that if you are an enemy of God, that you will receive his just and righteous judgment. But that's not the only thing we learn about his judgment in these chapters, because what we also learn is that the ultimate purpose of God's judgment is actually not to destroy. The purpose of God's judgment is not to destroy. It's to save. God's judgment is there because it's meant to save. You see, not only is Israel protected from God's judgment here, but Israel will be saved by it. It is the judgment of God on Pharaoh, their enemy, their slave master, that ultimately sets them free, that ultimately saves them, that ultimately delivers them. As one pastor put it, God's approach to judgment is not salvation or judgment, but salvation through judgment. Salvation comes through God's judgment. 
We see God's authority over all creation in these plagues of judgment. But there's a thread that runs throughout this narrative that points to the most important place that God actually has authority over. Did you catch it? The place that God has authority that's most important that's displayed in this narrative of the plagues is that he has authority over hearts. He has authority over human hearts. Pharaoh's hard heart remains in the same state throughout this entire narrative. Pharaoh shows signs of hope and change in these chapters. There are times, if you read it, excuse me, if you read it, I encourage you to read all of them. You see moments of Pharaoh that he seems to have hope. You seem, he seems to have changed in some of these, uh, through some of these plagues. But in the end, <clears throat> what you see is it remains just as hard, if not worse. See, with Pharaoh, when circumstances get hard, he seems to give in and maybe change a little bit his ways and his willingness to listen to God. But as soon as things go back to normal, so does he. And he shows what his heart's really like. He shows what his repentance really was for. We're even told, again, that he repents of his sin in the eighth plague. But we quickly see that he's not repentant of his sin. He's not sorrowful and repentant of his sin, but of the consequences that he's going through because of his sin. Here is the difficult point of this passage. This is a picture of all of our hearts. We have Pharaoh-like hard hearts. We are like him. Our hearts are hard and immovable. We refuse to listen and to follow God's word for our lives. We have this default approach to life that we're pretty okay. We're pretty capable of doing life on our own, that we don't really need God. Maybe we need a little help from him here and there, but not if it means total and complete commitment of our entire lives to him. But don't you see, that's the point of this text, that nothing is outside of his rule. Nothing is outside of his authority. So you can't do life without God. All of creation is created by him and for him. So when we seek to live apart from that reality, devastation and chaos will be our end. And when it does, when it does come into our life, what often happens is it gets our attention, right? When we experience the chaos and the consequences of our sin, it gets our attention just like it did Pharaoh. And we might even repent and commit to God because of what's going on in our life, but what we're really sorrowful for is ourselves and the consequences of what we're having to go through and what we are experiencing and what we're really committing to in our repentance in those moments is to stop trying to feel what we're going through, to stop going through what we're going through, right? Because once these things go back to normal, once comfort sets in in our day-to-day, we quick, are quick to abandon God. We are quick to not be mindful of him throughout our days. We quickly live life as if we don't need him, even if we give lip service to the fact that we do. And this text shines a light on the state of our hard hearts, and it shines a light of our need for new hearts. It is fitting that this last, the last plague in this, uh, in this category, this verse 9, the three sets of three, is darkness. <clears throat> Remember, these plagues and these judgments are an undoing of creation. 
So do you remember what God created on day one? Anyone? Class? Light, right? Created light. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. But here, in the undoing of creation, it becomes complete when God said, let there be darkness in Egypt. And then many years later, many, many years later in the Gospels, we're told that it's a sixth hour, it's noon, it's the middle of the day, and yet darkness comes again. Dark, <clears throat> darkness covers the whole earth when the enemy of God again receives judgment and the darkness coming down on him on noon. But this time it was not an enemy with a hard heart, but it was his son, God's only son, who was the creator and light of the world, experiences uncreation, decreation, creation being turned upside down and darkness covering now because the light of the world is taking on the judgment of God. The chaos of pre-creation and the darkness of God come down and are poured out on Jesus. And because of that, people with hard hearts like you and me, who are quick to be sorrowful for our circumstances rather than our sin, we will never experience that darkness. We will never experience what Jesus went through, the undoing of creation on the cross. Our maker, Jesus, the one whom our hearts are bent against, was unmade so that he could remake, change, and give us new hearts. God judges his son in order to save hard-hearted enemies like you and me. The one who has authority over everything uses that authority, his authoritative love to save his enemies, to save people who have hard hearts like Pharaoh. The fear of punishment and judgment from God did not change Pharaoh's heart, and it cannot change yours. Fear of punishment may change your behavior, but it will never touch your heart. But the authoritative love of God that compelled him to judge his son instead of you will always change your heart. Amen.